a KQED HD production. Some scientists estimate that they make up half of the mass of living things in the ocean. They're boneless, brainless, and most people would scream if they rubbed up against one. But jellies are as elegant as they are squishy, and they may hold the key to some of nature's most valuable mysteries. Researchers in the Monterey Bay Area are discovering dozens of new species of jellies and uncovering things about the ones that are already familiar to us. Chad Widmer is in charge of growing the jellies for one of the Monterey Bay Aquarium's most popular exhibits, which dazzles almost two million visitors each year. It's hard to raise jellies in captivity because there are a lot of things that can go wrong. They require daily care. If you have a dirty tank and you're not very diligent about cleaning and getting rid of all of the fouling organisms, they will all die. Northeast Pacific sea nettles always swim against the current. When I want to clean the windows of this tank, I can't do that very well if all the jellies are swimming around all over the place. So what I'll do is I'll turn off this valve, which turns off the current, and all of the jellies will sink to the bottom. And then I can get in there and clean the windows and back wall. Other jellies scientists have to actually go into the water to find their research subjects. Steve Haddock at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute in Moss Landing uses a remotely operated vehicle to study gelatinous animals in the depths of the bay. He studies some jellyfish, but mostly focuses on their obscure relatives. He's even come up with his own name for jellyfish and their cousins. The sort of technical term for that whole group of jelly-like organisms that you can find in the sea is gelatinous zooplankton. And I sort of felt like that was a bit of a mouthful, and so I started calling them gelata in my, in my own terminology. That's right, gelata. No, not the Italian ice cream, though gelata come in as many different flavors. Gelata first became popular with researchers in the mid-1800s. Biologists on long expeditions had time to hand-collect delicate gelatinous animals. They discovered fanciful animals related to jellyfish, which they called siphonophores. Then, in the 1930s, marine researchers upscaled their operations with bigger, faster ships. Fragile, gelatinous animals essentially disappeared from their nets. Imagine pulling this cheese grater through the water from a mile deep and pulling up the animals. All you're going to get left are the really sturdy ones that have hard body, hard exoskeletons. Starting in the 1980s, marine scientists used remotely operated vehicles known as ROVs to explore the ocean and rediscovered gelatinous animals. From the research vessel's control room, Haddock manipulates the ROV to collect siphonophore specimens. He estimates there are 80 species in Monterey Bay alone, where they live largely out of human sight. Siphonophores, I think, 
most people, even marine biologists, have probably never seen one, maybe never really even heard of them very much. It's a cousin of the jellyfish. They're so bizarre. A siphonophore, in one sense, could be described as a jellyfish that has been taken and stretched out and along that line grown out extra mouths and stomachs, relocated its swimming bell so that it's falling on both sides of that line. Some siphonophores have only two swimming bells to propel them forward. Others have many. Siphonophores carry their many tentacles, mouths, and stomachs around like a wide net that makes them very effective at catching small fish and crustaceans. The longest siphonophores can grow to more than 100 feet in length. This makes them the world's longest animals, even though they're no wider than a broomstick. Though they live all around the world and at all depths, the animals remain elusive because of their extreme fragility. They're living in an environment where there are no boundaries. There's no hard things really to bump up against unless it's a predator or prey. And so they're not really adapted to be robust and be able to, to bump into things. Case in point, when Haddock discovered this red siphonophore, he realized that it's extremely sensitive to light. We almost named it the exploding red siphonophore. Even in the distance, as soon as we saw it with the ROV, when the lights would reach it, it would start to just pop off little parts would go swimming and so it would sort of explode. Haddock learned to keep his distance and work fast. Clearly, this animal wasn't going to make it to the aquarium where sturdiness is part of the job description. To be on display, animals need to be hardy enough for show and tell. Here is a jelly and I'm holding it by the bell. You see they have these four long frilly mouth arms. It's kind of like having great big long frilly lips, which then passes the food up to the mouth. The mouth is located right in the middle of the jelly. So here I'm sticking my finger right into the mouth of this jelly. So they don't have a complete gut. So they eat things, it goes into the mouth, goes into the gut. Things that aren't digested then just have to come right back out the mouth again. So jellies aren't very polite dinner guests. In his lab at the aquarium, Widmer is growing 20 species of jellies found near the coast in Monterey Bay. I only have 14 different windows, so I only put the best looking jellies I have in my collection on display at any given time. To keep his displays full, Widmer makes sure his lab is always well stocked with jellies at the polyp stage. After fertilization, jelly larvae attach to hard surfaces and become pod-like polyps these polyps in turn produce other polyps. When temperature and food conditions are right, each polyp produces multiple baby jellies, which eventually pulse away. Today, Widmer is moving babies of a species known as egg yolk jellies to the first of a series of bigger and bigger tanks. As soon as some other jellies start going downhill, I'll replace them with these egg yolk jellies. Probably about six to eight weeks, these will be ready to go. While Widmer is working to produce the most beautiful jellies possible, Steve Haddock is trying to figure out what makes them so beautiful. He's been identifying the genes that give some siphonophores fluorescent properties. These animals can take one color of light, for example, blue light, 
and turn it into another color, in this case, green light. This is a siphonophore that we caught yesterday with the ROV. It's sort of our lab rat that we use for a lot of our experiments. The surface of the animal is covered with these little fluorescent spots. They're just sort of like this leopard spots almost. Researchers are just starting to figure out what jellies use fluorescence for. Haddock has found one species of siphonophore that flicks a red fluorescent lure near its stinging cells to attract fish. And the mysteries of fluorescence are turning out to benefit humans as well as gelatinous animals. A gene extracted from the crystal jelly has become so vital to the life sciences that the three scientists who discovered and developed the gene won the Nobel Prize in chemistry in 2008. Scientists engineer the jellyfish gene into research animals so that parts of them glow green. This allows them, for example, to follow the cells from the pancreas that are involved in diabetes in hopes of finding a cure. Despite their contributions to humanity, jellies living outside aquariums have more often than not been cast as villains. Well, they sting, so that's one thing against them. They can clog the nets of fishermen, can clog the intakes of public aquariums or uh, battleships or power plants. They have polyps that are growing along the shore, and when the conditions are right, all those polyps are gonna pop off little babies at the same time, so automatically you, you basically have a bloom that is going to occur of hundreds and thousands of these same species of jellies. Some researchers have suggested that there might be a worldwide increase in jellies populations brought on in part by the warming of the ocean. Widmer and Haddock are skeptical. We don't really have very good evidence whether or not jelly blooms are any worse than they have been through historical times. At present, people haven't done all of the science yet on all of the different species of jellies to say here are the effects of climate change on this jelly at this point in its life history. We haven't got there yet. The one thing that I would disagree with is that if we warm up the ocean, it's going to automatically make it a better place for jellyfish. An unhealthy ocean is going to be unhealthy for jellyfish too. Fragile and mysterious, gelatinous animals are slowly revealing more of their secrets to researchers. The Monterey Bay Aquarium aims to put a siphonophore on display in the near future. And who knows, perhaps one day, siphonophores will be as famous as the aquarium's sea nettles. <laughs>